The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hey everyone, it's Mike Morford here, host of The Murder of My Family. I wanted to invite you to listen to this special bonus episode, which has been released at the same time as episode 41 of the podcast, which is the case of Brenda Lacombe. In this bonus episode, I sit down with true crime author Dennis Griffin, whose background in law enforcement and his work with the Transparency Project has put him in touch with many family members of murder victims. As we do on this podcast, Dennis, or Danny as he prefers, helps provide a platform for these family members to discuss their loved ones' cases and to help spread awareness for them. His new book is called Survivors, Shocking True Stories About America's Pursuit of Police Transparency and Justice. Danny includes in his book the case of Brenda Lacombe from episode 41 of the podcast, as well as the case of Jack Robinson, who we discussed on episode 24. In his new book, Danny shares a lot of cases that deserve attention. I hope you enjoy this bonus episode and check out Danny's new book. If you're a fan of the work we do here on The Murder of My Family, I think you'll appreciate his book, Survivors. Thanks, and we'll be back soon with an all-new episode of The Murder of My Family. Hi, Danny, and welcome to the show. Hi, Mike. A pleasure to be on with you. I appreciate you taking the time to come on and uh, talk about your book. Well, I'm really, I've been looking forward to this, so I'm, I'm anxious to, uh, to talk with you. So, uh, I've been aware of you for a while. I think we move in some of the same circles and, and talk to some of the same people, so it's nice to get a chance to talk with you. Yes, and I, I want to uh, uh, compliment you and, uh, for the work you do. I, I mean, uh, the people taking an interest and advocating for the uh, victims and the survivors of victims uh, is something I think is very important and needs to be done, and people like you... Who, uh, who give your time to it, uh, certainly are to be commended. Well, I, I appreciate that. I think, you know, I want to reiterate what you just said. That's very important to to give people a platform to be able to talk about these cases and, and to, so that they're not forgotten. I 100% agree. Yeah. So I was looking at your Amazon page, and it seems that you're quite an accomplished uh, true crime author. How many books do you have published in total? Total, including my fictions, I, I think number 20 is, is coming out, uh, just come out, the Survivor's book, that's number 20. Uh, I take it that your background in law enforcement has provided a lot of the inspiration and um, some of the material for, for these books? It has. It, it's provided the inspiration, and it's also, on, uh, you know, knowing how things work or are supposed to work, and... Um, and knowing how to ask questions and have a dialogue with with people in law enforcement or people who are dealing with law enforcement, uh, that's all been a great help. And as someone who's been in law enforcement, it's safe to say that you've seen every kind of tragedy and had countless interactions with families of, of victims of these kind of crimes. What kind of toll does all of that take on a person after a while having to deal with uh, so much of that stuff. Well, it, some people say that cops end up getting what they call gallows humor and so forth. I, I, I guess this may be a defense mechanism to uh, 
to uh, to not let it get to you. But yeah, you hear, uh, see, and hear an awful lot of things and stuff that's uh, certainly tragic, disheartening, uh, and you know people deal with it in different ways. Uh, I was fortunate in the sense that I went from uh, a deputy sheriff to an investigator for New York State, and I was once I did that, I wasn't dealing directly with certain situations, um, and, and that I really enjoyed that. I mean, it was, it was it was pretty much all upside for me. I really I really loved that. The um, then when I retired and got into the writing piece, and, and uh, again started dealing with victims, and I. Uh, have a Crime Wire podcast where we interview and uh, and again deal with a lot of the victims and the survivors. Um, then that all came back, seeing the you know the, the dark side of things and and what happens to people, what can happen to people. So it's uh, but I'm into it. You know, I I could do something different, I suppose, but I really see the issues here, and I think it's very important to hang in there and the the people a lot of the people that I interview or that are going to be or that are in the book the survivors book are people who have encountered obstacle after obstacle after obstacle in trying to get answers about what happened to their loved ones and I always encourage them to stick to it although I I, I know it can be maddening and frustrating and you keep getting your head up against a brick wall and you just want to throw your arms up and you know, say it. This is it. I can't take anymore. Uh, and I understand that. Uh, I can certainly understand why people would eventually come to that point. But for those who have the uh, emotional uh, wherewithal to keep going, uh, I, you know, I can't say enough about that and how important it is. And uh, although these aren't my personal tragedies, we discuss. Um, uh, as upsetting as they are, I'm not going to encourage other people not to give up and then me give up. So I'm sticking with this and I'm going to see it through. So the book is Survivor, Shocking True Stories About America's Pursuit of Police Transparency and Justice. Tell us a little bit about the book and what went into making it. Okay, this uh, the motivation for the book was again, a public awareness thing, because I've come to the conclusion, and I believe wholeheartedly, that in order to, to help balance the playing field for the survivors, there needs to be public awareness. And hopefully, if we can get a, a wave going, the interest going, uh, we can get legislation enacted that will help balance the playing field. Because right now, a lot of the uh, survivors uh, feel that the playing field is pretty much tilts in favor of a suspect or a defendant, and that the uh, the families that are trying to get information are shortchanged. And what we'd like to do is try to get transparency, where the uh, the survivors who are fighting the battle of trying to find out what happened to their loved one. Can, can get the information they need uh, in an accurate and timely manner. So that, that was the motivation. 
And what I did was I reached out to uh, several people. A lot of them were people I'd interviewed on the Crime Wire uh, podcast. And asked if they would be interested in telling their story in an anthology. And I also reached out to some cold case, civilian cold case investigators about how they approach a, a cold case investigation and the obstacles that, that they see and, um, and suggestions for, for how to deal with certain situations. So um, that was the impetus behind the book. And the stories, again, are the, the, the stories of the survivors, what they have dealt with as far as dealing with the system and where they intend to go in the future, still trying to get some, and I don't use the word closure. I, when you lost somebody like that, I don't think closure is, is the right word. Closure almost implies like it never happened and you're never going to think about it again. Uh, but resolution, uh, some type of resolution to get those questions answered and then hopefully justice for the victim. You know, my goal in, in doing this podcast is to give loved ones of murder victims a platform to discuss their family members' cases and to share how they've been affected in the aftermath. Did you sort of approach the book with the same kind of uh, idea of, of allowing a place where these stories can be told and, and shared? Absolutely. That was, that was the whole thing. I wanted to provide a platform for people to share their experiences and what they've had to deal with and maybe, and point out the shortcomings and, uh, you know, where possibly there could be some remedies there to make the system a little easier to work with and more efficient for the survivors. And how many cases do you touch on or cover in the book? Including the cold case investigators. Uh, there are four of those four chapters by them and, and they reference some cases that they worked, um, although it's from their perspective rather than the survivors. And then there are, I believe, uh, 18 or 19 uh, actual survivors who, who who contributed their stories about their loved ones. I know a couple of the, the people you talk about in the book or, or discuss the cases about in the, in the book were actually um, guests that I've had on here, but I know there's there's plenty more in, in that book. Can you give us a, a couple examples of, of maybe a couple of the cases uh, in the book that stand out to you about what sort of a quick uh, synopsis about what those cases are, are about? Yes. I, one is uh, it, one that I personally was involved with as a, as a private investigator. And there was the death of a U.S. Army sergeant named Patrick Rust. It is officially and undetermined. It's not a homicide. Uh, they didn't classify it as that. The, because the body, the remains were in such a condition they couldn't do any toxicology. There was no evidentiary value. So it's just an undetermined cause and manner of death. However, the circumstances surrounding the death uh, speak volumes, in my opinion. So on behalf of Sergeant Russ's mother, I did I started in 2010, so it's been nine years I've been working on this. And uh, it's a typical situation where the authorities, the investigation done by the authorities, both the Army, CID, and the uh, 
local law enforcement agency uh, left an awful lot of unanswered questions and trying to get get them to take another look and follow up on certain information uh, that's been developed since then uh, and and just get the run around and ignored and uh, poor Mrs. Rust has been uh, misled uh, several times. So it, it, that really got me thinking about how many other people are in similar situations. And uh, again, none of these cases that are in the book have, have an end because they're all unanswered. They're, they're open homicides or suspicious death cases. So there's no conclusions. There's no endings to any of them. And that's the situation that I am and Mrs. Roster in at the present. Another case of uh, a lady named Phyllis Cook, and we're going back five decades with this, uh, where her brother and later her father we're both dead under very suspicious circumstances. This is, uh, she, she is confident that the people responsible are what they call the Dixie Mafia, a southern, uh, southern operation from Mississippi area. And she has been fighting the battle for years now with uh, a lack of cooperation. And God bless her for, for staying with it. But, uh, that's another case that's very frustrating and and needed to be told to let people know what can happen and what some of these people have to deal with. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. One thing I've found in dealing with, with all these type of cases is that no two people handle their grief the same way or are at the same exact point in the aftermath of a loved one's death. So there's no universal approach in trying to tell their stories. Um, have you found that as well in your uh, when you were writing this book? Absolutely. And uh, dealing with all these people, and I must say, first, I want to expand on an answer to a question I uh, you asked me a few minutes ago. Um, the 18 or 19 survivor stories that are in the book are... There are a lot more, and what happened was, when, when I first came up with the idea of doing this book, I had over 40 people who had expressed an interest, and all but this final group, during the course of trying to get this uh, put together, they fell by the wayside. Some of them just couldn't deal with it. They, they said they tried to relive what happened and get it on paper, and they just couldn't bring themselves to do it. Uh, that was the primary reason. And others uh, thought that if they told the story, they would get uh, in the doghouse or on the outs with the local law enforcement. They were afraid of that. And so there, was, there were several reasons, but the primary reason that uh, a lot of them dropped out of the project was because they just couldn't bring themselves to relive the situation. And that dealing with 
the survivors I, that are in the book, um, I think there were two exceptions where the contributors had had some writing experience. Everybody else had never written anything before for, for publication. And, and that was a very time consuming. I acted as uh, an editor uh, and it was really time consuming and a lot of work because the, the thoughts, you know, weren't in a, the order that you'd want to see in a, in a finished book or a finished story. And um, it required going back and forth a, a lot. And again, some of the people got frustrated because we, you know, trying to get it right, trying to get it where it would be suitable to, to be in a book. So, but they all worked with me, the, the ones that are in the book. And we finally got everything together. And like you say, the styles are different, how they dealt with grief is different, and how they dealt with anger. Uh, a lot of these people, in fact, all of them are very frustrated. They, they've been through hell and back, and, uh, well, not even back yet, they're still in it. And uh, they have, you know, very legitimate reasons to be concerned and frustrated. So all of that comes into play. Well, I know, I know that there's a, a, an assortment of, of different cases with different scenarios. I know um, I covered the case of Jack Robinson in episode 24 of this podcast, and um, which is, seems like a very uh, just a random, uh, isolated case with without much to go on besides a. a a mysterious man. And then I just in episode 41 spoke with, um, about the Brenda Lacombe case. Um, and in that case, you know, here, her niece is going through, uh, the part of having to play, uh, armchair detective because she's, you know, a sense in a sense, getting as much or more done than, than the actual police. Um, is that the kind of frustration you hear, uh, from these people, that you're talking with for the book of how frustrated they are? Does it seem like a common thread that they're not getting anywhere with their cases? Yes. They're, out of these the stories in the book, there's only one where the contributor was totally, it's an unsolved case, as you know, but as far as the police investigation, the there's only one of the stories where the contributor is totally comfortable with what the police have done. Everything else, every other story, there are issues with uh, how the investigation was conducted or if there was an investigation at all. In some cases, there wasn't an investigation. Um, how the, uh, the police or the authorities have responded to requests for information and, uh, and assistance. And it's, uh, yes, it's, it's a very frustrating thing. And then those are common. Those issues are common uh, with that one exception. And, and this book, and, and a lot of your work seems to be connected to the Transparency Project. Um, can you tell the listeners a little about the Transparency Project and how that helps people that are dealing with the tragic and many times violent loss of a loved one? Yes, I, that, that's one of the one of the stumbling blocks or roadblocks, if you will, the families encounter in, in trying to get answers. Uh, and it especially applies to situations where the death has been ruled a homicide. Because when 
the the police or the authorities are exempt from FOIA requests under what they call the open case exemption. And of course, unsolved homicides are, remain as open cases. So that an agency that's uh, received a request for information can say, well, we're exempt from that. It's an open case, therefore we're not going to tell you anything. And, you know, there are certainly situations where that's a legitimate thing. There's, you know, an active investigation, you don't want to blow it, you don't want to give away information that would, that would help a suspect and so forth. But the cases that have been inactive, in some cases uh, for decades, that really doesn't hold water. You know, it, it's, it's something you wonder, how, how can this be? What is, what is it going to hurt to, to let me see what happened in the investigation now? What's going to hurt to let me see the, the documentation or the paperwork? And I found that there was uh, a law in Illinois called Molly's Law, and it helps. What, what it does is if you file, in Illinois now, if you file a FOIA request and the police agency refuses to comply based on the open case exemption, now you can appeal to the attorney general of the state. And if the, the agency that's de declined or denied your request has to prove not only that the case is open, but they have to prove it's active. And that's the key. They, they can't be on a shelf somewhere gathering dust. It's got to be where they're actually working the case. And if they can't prove that, the AG can order the information released. So that is one key, key element. It's not the end, but it's a good start trying to get transparency so that people don't feel, uh, so the survivors don't feel that there's a cover-up in progress uh, based on information they've developed on their own. And, but they can't get access to what what the authorities did uh, when they were investigating. It also extends the wrongful death lawsuit uh, statute to allow, in certain cases, uh, murder cases, it was a two-year statute, now it's five years. So that gives the families another a uh, little bit of an opportunity to, to perhaps get the uh, defendant or the suspect into a court setting and depositions under a wrongful death civil suit. Uh, that's important. The other thing it does is when a person is arrested and charged with the murder or with the crime and goes to trial or plea bargain, whatever, there's, a, there's an action, a court action, the family now has one year after the verdict, the decision, whatever it is, can be guilty, not guilty, it doesn't matter. The family has one year from that date to file a wrongful death suit. So if, if somebody isn't arrested for eight years or ten years after the, uh, after the incident and they, they go through a court proceeding, uh, the family has a year after that to go. So it, uh, in certain cases, some of these people, uh, perpetrators, can be held accountable civilly for long, long after uh, other statute limitations have run. So you're, you're assisting uh, 
I guess by spreading awareness of uh, things that can be done to help in some of these cases. Yes. And things that a lot of people don't think about. And also uh, getting the idea, across again, not to give up and encouraging people to continue the fight, but uh, trying to get information out to them as, like you say, what they can do, some other options they might want to consider. And Larry Young, who was the impetus in Illinois behind Molly's Law, Molly was his, his daughter, uh, he is, uh, is helping also because he is sharing information with, uh, with other people interested in their state of trying to get legislation passed based on Molly's Law. So uh, he is very active again, and trying to get the word out and trying to get that playing field balanced. Well, you're doing some admirable work, whether it's with the book or with the Transparency Project. Um, and I know it's not easy work to do, that's for sure. But uh, there are a lot of people out there right now who might benefit from uh, the work you're doing or the book. Um, if, if someone wants to find your book, when will it be available and, and where can people find it? August 1st, and it will be on Amazon and Allie Blue, that's A-L-Y-B-L-U-E, Allie Blue Media website. Allie Blue Media is the publisher, so it will be available. And I'm sure other online outlets as well, but Amazon is obviously the biggie, and then uh, uh, directly from the publisher. Well, by the time people are listening to this, that book will be out there, and we'll put a link into it so people can find it. It's it's, it's a really good cause and really uh, something that I think listeners of this podcast can appreciate and w- would be interested in reading. Well, I I agree with you. I think it is, and uh, certainly hope I hope that we're both right. Yeah. Well, once again, that's that book is called Survivors: Shocking True Stories About America's Pursuit of Police Transparency and Justice uh, by Dennis Green, Denny, uh, as you like to be called. Uh, and I, I can't thank you enough for joining us to discuss uh, your work in this book. And I hope you continue to keep up this kind of work. Well, thank you, Mike. And I, I think we'll be working together maybe in the future on some other stuff. So I really appreciate it. And again, thank you for what you do. Awesome. Thank you.